These transmissions indicate some intelligent life. Let us move in for a closer look. Greetings. Good Sunday morning to you. I'm back. Welcome to the Coffee with Jeff podcast. This is a show where I find a subject I would like to know more about, and then I write it into a story that I present to you. This is episode 224, and today I talk about a couple of dirty, uneducated miners in the Old West who tricked some rich people out of a lot of money. The year was 1872, more than two decades after the start of the California Gold Rush, and the nation was just waiting for the next big thing. Philip Arnold and John Slack created a scam that would give the people just what they were hoping for. Today I bring you the astonishing story of the Great Diamond Hoax of 1872. Our story begins sometime in the fall of 1871. Two dirty, trail-worn prospectors walked into the Bank of California carrying a small leather sack. The two men, Philip Arnold and John Slack, were poorly educated cousins from Kentucky. They claimed that the contents of their bag were valuable and were looking for a place to store it. They ended up at the office of George D. Roberts, a financier and businessman. Before George could help, he needed to know just what was in the bag. Arnold and Slack, who were apparently reluctant to show, finally gave in with a promise from Robert that he would keep it a secret. Inside the bag were rough, uncut diamonds. And here's the thing. Arnold and Slack claimed that there were a lot more diamonds from where those came from. The pair had a secret diamond mine in the American West. George had no reason to doubt the two men. After all, the California gold rush had begun only 22 years earlier, and diamonds had been found occasionally in the United States. But no one knew where they were coming from. At the same time, some major diamond mines had been discovered in South Africa. People in America were waiting for the next big thing. So why not diamonds? George Roberts, who was known for acting fast and not asking too many questions, promised to keep the diamonds a secret. But, of course, he broke that promise almost immediately. With excitement, he told William C. Ralston, founder of the Bank of California, and Asbury Harpening, an adventurer and financier. The men with dollar signs in their eyes acted quickly. These rich American businessmen offered to buy out the two outright. But smartly, Arnold and Slack refused. After coming back with a second visit from the diamond mine, with another bag of jewels, Slack asked for $100,000 for his share. $50,000 now and $50,000 more after the two made a third visit to the diamond field. All right now, you may have guessed, since this episode is called The Great Diamond Hoax of 1872, and the fact that now today we know that there are no diamond mines in the United States, Philip Arnold and John Slack were con men. 
Philip Arnold was born in 1827 in Kentucky, in the same county as Abraham Lincoln. With very little education, he was trained as a hatter's apprentice. He fought in the Mexican War and was part of the California Gold Rush. After 20 years or so of mining in the Old West, he made enough money to return to Kentucky to buy a farm. Soon he was married with a family. But life in Kentucky didn't suit Arnold. The money he was making on his farm was very little, and soon he left his wife and four kids to travel to the West to look for excitement. He ended up working as a bookkeeper at the San Francisco Diamond Drill Company. His boss was a man named James B. Cooper, who admitted later that he gave Arnold the whole idea of the scam. And it was through Cooper that Arnold learned all he could about diamonds. The Diamond Drill Company used industrial-grade diamonds on their diamond-headed drill bits. Somehow, the 40-year-old Arnold acquired a bag of these. Most likely, he stole them before leaving the company. At the same time, he took on a partner, his older cousin, also from Kentucky, John Slack. Slack, like Arnold, had fought in the Mexican War and had gone after gold in 1849. The pair might not have had a good education, but they knew how to play Roberts. The reluctance to reveal the diamonds or tell the location of the mine would whet Robert's appetite all the more, and Robert took the bait. They also counted on the fact that Roberts wouldn't be able to keep such a lucrative opportunity a secret. While Roberts was breaking his promise by telling Ralston and Harpeting, who both bought into the story completely, Arnold and Slack supposedly returned to their mind and returned with another bag— 60 pounds of diamonds and rubies, which they said was authenticated by a local jeweler to be worth $600,000. Roberts, Ralston, and Harpeting were now joined by San Francisco mining entrepreneur William Lent and General George C. Dodge. These five men wanted to buy out Arnold Slack as soon as possible and take over the operation. Arnold and Slack were smart enough to act as if they didn't want to sell. But eventually, Slack would sell out his share for $100,000, $50,000 now, and $50,000 when they returned from another trip to the mine. The pair made this deal because they needed the $50,000 to keep their scam going. They traveled across the pond to good old England using assumed names to buy more uncut gems. They bought $20,000 worth of rough diamonds and rubies from a London diamond merchant named Leopold Keller. It is assumed that they traveled through Canada to avoid having to declare the stones as that would have raised suspicion. Once back, they told their investors they would travel to their secret location and bring back $2 million worth of jewels. What they came back with, of course, was a lot less. They had the story of losing a bag of jewels while crossing a river, even though no such river existed. The bag they did have, Arnold gave to Harpening in Oakland, and he took it to San Francisco for his investors to see. The group of investors kept growing. They obtained the services of Samuel Latham Mitchell Barlow, one of the foremost lawyers of the day. Barlow brought in General George B. McClellan, who was famous for his work during the Civil War. Samples of the stones were taken to New York to be examined by Charles Louis Tiffany of the famous jeweler house that bears his name. Tiffany said, These are beyond question precious stones of an enormous value. He valued the hall at $150,000. 
And since they had only brought about 10% of what they had, they figured the jewels they had were worth a million and a half dollars. Oddly, no one questioned, not even Mr. Tiffany, how such an odd assortment of jewels, diamonds, rubies, sapphires, and emeralds, could all have come from the same place. Or why Arnold and Slack were willing to sell such a valuable mine for such a small price. I wonder if Arnold thought, when the gems were took to Tiffany, if the scam was going to be discovered. He must have been shocked when the jeweler reported that the stones that he paid $20,000 for were valued at over a million dollars. How is this possible? While Tiffany held each stone up to the light, using his jeweler's glass to gaze at them intently, the fact was not Tiffany nor his men were experienced at dealing with uncut diamonds. A corporation was set up called the Golconda Mining Company, with a capital stock of $10 million. Still, at this time, Arnold and Slack would not reveal the location of their mine, but hinted that the location was somewhere in the Arizona Territory. At this stage of the proceedings, Harpening later said, Arnold became restive. He said he was placing his property at the mercy of others, without proper security, that what he had received was a trifle compared to the value he was about to disclose, and he must have a further guarantee in cold cash. So, after getting some more money, Arnold traveled again to Europe, most likely again through the ports of Canada, and purchased more jewels. He needed more because he knew it was only a matter of time before he would have to show the group his secret location. He selected a 3,000-acre mesa on the edge of the Vermilion Creek at its junction with the Ruby Gulch at the foot of Diamond Peak. God, that sounds so Old West. It was in the northwest corner of Colorado, near the North Wyoming border, just a few miles from Utah. The closest railroad was about 75 miles to the north. The place was in a remote, dry area with the constant threat of Native American attacks. Arnold probably figured that this would give the investors very little time to check up on their investment. Arnold made several trips to the area to get it right, to salt the mine with the new stones he had bought in Europe. Every time he traveled to the location, he had to avoid other miners who might be suspicious. He would wrap his horse's hooves with canvas and wear moccasins himself to avoid footprints. It is not known how exactly he completely fooled all those that might have been curious. The investing group hired Henry Janin, who they considered the finest mining engineer in the world. He was a man they felt they could unquestionably rely on for his judgment of the diamond property. He had inspected and reported on hundreds of mining properties without any of his clients losing a cent because of their investments made on his recommendations. His stamp of approval was considered huge. On August 1st, 1872, the group left a train at the small station of Rollins, Wyoming. This was about twice as far as if they had taken the train to Black Butte Station. The investors were then blindfolded and taken on horseback. Arnold wanted to give the impression that the location was more remote than it was. Arnold wanted to give the impression that the location was far more remote than it actually was. On the horse ride out, Arnold sometimes acted as if they were lost. He would climb up a hill or ride ahead to see if they were on the right path. Once they arrived, the men quickly jumped off their horses and began using picks and shovels. Of course, they quickly found what they were looking for. I had not been on the ground more than three minutes, Harpening said, before I found large diamonds. 
That day we got over 500 diamonds, rubies, sapphires, and emeralds. Arnold would generally tell me where the best places were to dig for gems. We only had gold pans, so two men were washing and two more were sorting the dirt. Again, no one questioned why they were finding such a wide range of different gems. By the time they settled down for the night, all the men were very excited. Within two days, Janin was convinced that this find would allow him to control the gem market of the world. Quickly, about 3,000 acres were staked off with notices posted of the claim to protect the property. After returning, Janin issued a glowing report of the mind. Harpeting wrote that half the truth had not been told that the diamond fields were rich beyond calculating, that every doubt and shadow of a doubt had been absolutely removed. By the time all the negotiation was done, Arnold had milked the investors for about $650,000 without ever making any investment himself. That's equal to over $10 million in today's money. As for Slack, well, he disappears from our story at this point. To this day, no one really knows what became of him, though there is one story and we'll get to that at the end. Maybe he was just satisfied to take the money he made and enjoy a quiet life. Who knows? By now, news of the diamond mine had gotten out. Stories in the paper read, Diamond Mines, Arizona, Expedition Overland Direct. An expedition to reach the diamond mine is now organizing. Yes, it was reported that the diamond mines were in Arizona. And as the group of investors continued to grow and stocks were sold with all the legal dealings that happened and things like this, there was a chance meeting that changed everything. Clarence King, an American Yale-educated geologist, mountaineer, and author, had been doing a lot of surveying work out in the West. One day, two men who worked for King, geologist Samuel F. Edmonds and his topographical assistant, Alan J. Wilson, were on a westbound train traveling to San Francisco. Also on the train was James T. Gardner, the chief topographer. It was on the train that they met Henry Jannon. Jannon freely talked about the diamond mines, but refused to tell the men the location of the mine. However, Edmonds, Wilson, and Gardner who had done a lot of surveying work in the area, were able to figure out the location. This whole thing was a big worry for King, since him and his men had already surveyed the area. If there had been fields of jewels just lying about, it would call into question all their scientific knowledge and expertise. King had already written a paper claiming that there were no precious gems in the American desert, that the proper conditions for diamonds did not exist in the American West. A find such as this could ruin him. From a knowledge of the country, King later recounted, I was certain there was only one place in the country which answered the description. As this place lay within the limits of the 14th parallel survey, I determined to go there. The main reason why I had to do it was as a matter of self-defense. After a four-day trip, they arrived on the site and, looking around on the ground, began to find diamonds and rubies. Suddenly, they were caught up in the fever, and for a while believed the stories were true. They bedded down after the first night and were dreaming of the riches that would come their way. But the following day, suspicions began to arise. Gems were only found in the ground that had obviously been disturbed. Areas that weren't disturbed never had valuable stones. Sometimes there was evidence of jewels being pushed into the earth with a miner's bar. 
Besides diamonds, they found jewels like rubies, sapphires, and emeralds, and that shouldn't be. And they found that the placement of these jewels was in too much of a neat scheme for a natural deposit. King concluded, summing up the minerals, the rock had produced four distinct types of diamonds, a few oriental rubies, garnets, spindles, sapphires, emeralds, and amethysts, an association of minerals of impossible occurrence in nature. But the final straw came when a diamond was discovered that had obviously been cut. One man exclaimed, Look, Mr. King, the diamond field not only produces diamonds, but cuts them also. This one had a smooth surface that a lapidary's tool had clearly been used on. They spent two days examining the site, digging ten feet below the surface, where more should have been found, but there was nothing. On the fourth day at the site, a man strolled up on a horse. He asked about the diamond field, and King told him that it was a fraud. The man said, what a chance to sell short on the stock. His name was John F. Berry, a New York diamond dealer. He had secretly followed King and his men and had been watching them with a spyglass. Berry had found out the truth, and now he could dump his stocks before the word got out. King quickly sent a message to his bosses in Washington to go at once to San Francisco and find out the status of the company and prevent, if possible, further transactions in the stock. Traveling back to San Francisco, King took most of a night convincing Janin of what they had discovered, presenting him with all the evidence. I would guess this must have been quite a shock, as Janin had been drooling, like everybody else, over his impending wealth for a long time. When King presented the findings to the other investors, some hoped or even begged him to delay his report, to give them time to sell off their stock. King responded by saying, There is not enough money in the Bank of California to make me delay the publication a single hour. Soon the story of fraud was all over the papers and the company was quickly dissolved. Then started the search for Arnold and Slack. Slack was never found, but Arnold had taken his newfound wealth back to Kentucky and set up a quiet life with his family. When the men from California brought suit against him, the state of Kentucky refused to extradite him. The state supported Arnold for milking these Yankees out of their money. Arnold eventually agreed to return $150,000 in exchange for immunity from further litigation. Some say Harpening and the rest made this deal just to avoid further embarrassment. According to the book Diamonds in the Salt by Bruce A. Woodard, a book that I used to write this story, Slack had taken a job building caskets in St. Louis. Eventually, according to Woodard, Slack moved to White Oaks, New Mexico, where he became an undertaker, living alone until his death at the age of 76 in 1869. He left behind a state worth $1,600. As for Philip Arnold, he bought a two-story brick house in Elizabethtown, Kentucky for him and his family, along with about 500 acres where he bred horses, sheep, and pigs. In 1873, Arnold would become a banker himself by putting up money into the Elizabethtown bank that had temporarily closed its doors. In 1878, he had a quarrel with another banker in town. That led to a shootout that injured three bystanders. Arnold took a shotgun blast to the shoulder. Six months later, he was still recovering when he contracted pneumonia and, at the age of 49, passed away. Although he left his family comfortably off, several hundred thousand dollars has never been accounted for. 
a little bit before I go. First, I, I need to apologize for my lack of new episodes over the last few months. And I want to thank all those listeners who wrote me to find out if everything was okay. Everything's just fine. Things just got a little busy around the Kelly household. There had been some medical issues, a major remodeling of the house. Work was busy. I had some family things going on. I had some freelance work that I did for a watch company. For lack of a better phrase, it was the perfect storm of responsibilities. I'm 60 years old and still not used to this adult thing, you know. But I should be back on a regular schedule, so we'll see how it goes. As for today's story, a lot of it, but not all of it, was based on the book Diamonds in the Salt by Bruce Albert Woodard. And as you probably realize, there's a lot more to the story that I can tell in my 20 minutes. In my show notes at the Transistor.fm website for Coffee with Jeff, I'll have all the links to the sources I used if you want to read further. But I do suggest picking up a copy of the book, Diamonds in the Salt. Anyway, how about the ending credits? You've been listening to Coffee with Jeff, a Zeus Brothers Entertainment podcast. I thank you all for listening. If you'd like to help me out with the money it takes to produce this show, I do have a Patreon account, and you can find a link to that at the Coffee with Jeff website. Even the smallest donation can keep this show going. I'd be forever grateful. Just go to coffeewithjeff.com for more information. And if you can't do that, why not just tell a friend or two about the show? You can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that you're invited to join. You can leave me story ideas at any of those places. I always enjoy getting story ideas. And links to the sources I use to write today's story are available at transistor.fm's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. You can find a link to that at the Coffee with Jeff website. I want to thank my wife of 37 years for being my wife of 37 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickert for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all of you who repost this on social media. That's just fantastic. You have a special place in my heart. Thank you all, and I promise to be back in two weeks with something exciting. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream. Didn't like it, now he never looks back. Coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff Met a girl from Beantown Jeff was always hanging around She drank tea, but that was okay She was the
the dawn of Jeff's new day. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, more coffee with Jeff. Years go by and life's filled with change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you. Coffee.